ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. This is the NT Country Hour on ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory. G'day there, Dan Fitzgerald is my name. Thanks a lot for joining me for the program this Tuesday. Well, today we're going to catch up with a bull stud, which it says has brought in a breed of cattle that's never been seen before in the Territory. They carry an awful lot of beef on their carcass. They're just amazing, the size of them. And our lightest one was just dawn two years old. He came in at 958 kgs, and these bulls were not fat. They were, they were just, they're just heavy bulls. Yeah, you'll find out what breed of bull has come into the Territory on the show very soon. And we'll also today catch up with an 11-year-old Territory lad that right now is on a plane to the US to represent Australia in one of that country's biggest rodeo competitions. Every afternoon I'll do a little workout. Uh, when Dad's home, we'll buck a few ponies out. I've been putting a ringing on some of the balls to practice and, yeah. I reckon I'll go pretty good. I'm going to put everything I've got in it. Yeah, that's one of three Territory boys who are heading over to Las Vegas to ride in a huge radio competition. You'll hear from him soon. First up today, Santos says Australia's offshore regulations for oil and gas projects are driving investment away from the country. Santos is returning to court next week to defend itself from a legal challenge by Tiwi traditional owners to its multi-billion dollar Barossa gas development in the Timor Sea. Let's have a bit of a listen to a Chief Executive Kevin Gallagher speaking at an Investor Day conference about regulations which he says are killing the oil and gas industry in Australia. The industry needs a regulatory regime that we can rely on, that provides reasonable upfront certainty on the rules required to obtain approvals. We've got to be able to rely on those approvals given when we make these investment decisions and when we commence activities. We can't be contracting rigs and vessels and then finding we're getting held up in court like we are today. That is going to drive investment away from Australia. Nothing will drive investment away from Australia faster than this, this environment. We're working with other industry participants because this is affecting all of us. I think only five EPs have been approved by the regulator in the last 14 months or so, and one of them has subsequently been, been turned around again following a legal challenge. So that uncertainty is killing us right now in Australia. We're working with government, we're working with industry stakeholders uh, to try and get these things fixed. Um, but my call to government is they need to be fixed. If they're not fixed, investment in Australia is going to dry up for offshore. Um, and indeed, it'd be very difficult for us to FID any other offshore projects uh, here in Australia until we get a more certain regulatory regime than we have today. Kevin Gallagher, Santos's chief executive, speaking there at one of the company's investor forums. Now, the oil and gas industry's lobby group, Australian Energy Producers, formerly known as APIA, it's also been talking a lot about Australia's offshore regulatory system, which it says is broken and that regulations that provide clarity and certainty for industry while maintaining comprehensive 
and meaningful consultation with stakeholders are urgently needed. Woodside, Australia's largest gas producer, has also been talking about these regulations. To pick this apart a little bit more, we're joined by Bryn O'Brien from the Australasian Centre for Corporate Responsibility, which has been lobbying, watching this lobbying from the oil and gas industry very closely. Uh, Bryn, can you explain to us why the industry and Santos's Kevin Gallagher are so concerned? Well, Kevin Gallagher is um, understandably uh, nervous because Santos has now been the subject of federal court decisions upholding Tiwi traditional owner uh, rights in relation to the massive uh, proposed Barossa project, which is a a Santos project. And what those uh, federal court decisions have done is um, give greater clarity on what constitutes proper consultation, um, particularly in relation to uh, this sea country, um, uh, Tiwi sea country. And what the, the court has found is that it, it's not satisfied at this point that proper consultation has been undertaken. And um, that is not a, I, I, think, I think Kevin Gallagher is trying to make the case that um, the law is is broken and it's not just Kevin making that case. The um, uh, lobbyists for the oil and gas industry um, and also Woodside, uh, Australia's largest oil and gas company, have been out there in the public making that case very aggressively for the last couple of months. But really, that's that's not what the court found. The court did not find that the law was unworkable. The, law, the, the court found that the law was workable and just that the companies did not undertake that adequate consultation. Yeah, as you said, Santos, Woodside, Oil and Gas Lobby Group, Australian Energy Producers, they're all pushing for changes to regulations. Why do you think they don't need reform? Well, look, we think they're pushing to changes for regulations because they always want to get their own way. And unfortunately for them, that's not what the rule of law means. The rule of law, which we have in Australia, which makes Australia an attractive destination for uh, investment, it makes it an attractive destination for mining and and extractive industries. It doesn't mean you always get your own way. So there there have been a couple of cases where the companies have not got their own way um, in, in the last, over the last year. But that doesn't mean the law is broken and in desperate need of reform. Um, and, and, you know, this is sometimes, you, you know, you don't get your own way and, and that is a part of a, a healthy system. Santos says it's driving investment away from the country. Do you think that is the case? Well, I don't think there's any evidence of that. Um, I, I don't know that, that Kevin Gallagher has provided any. But I certainly think this is costing Santos um, a lot of money because, um, as Kevin said, they, they do have rigs out there waiting to be used and they don't um, currently have the legal permission to use them. So that is expensive. But again, it, it's not um, related to uh, a broken system. It's, it's a functioning system where, you know, sometimes, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't turn out in the way that oil and gas executives would like it to turn out. Yeah, we have seen a number of challenges from traditional owners, not only here in the Northern Territory, but in Western Australian projects. What do you think oil and gas companies can learn from all of these legal challenges in this space? Well, they just need to comply with the law. Um, and, and the law sets out um, uh, the rules around cons- consultation. And I should say, Australia's laws in relation to um, consultation are not um, up to international uh, best practice standards. They are, you know, the law affords fairly meagre protection for the rights of traditional owners. 
And even that meagre protection, the companies are, are up in arms about. So, you know, it, it really is um, a, a matter of genuine consultation of really going and consulting with the appropriate people and meeting those, you know, quite low bar legal standards. Kevin Gallagher, the CEO of Santos, making these comments at uh, Investor Day, you know, is an escalation. This is really, they're going really hard on this now. And again, mm. Santos, Woodside and the Australian Energy Producers, the lobby group that represents the oil and gas industry. Um, and given that we're seeing CEOs now wade into this debate about law, this is a governance issue for these companies. This is, and it's a cultural issue for these companies. So their boards of directors ultimately um, need to be answerable to shareholders on this. And I imagine that there are shareholders that are quite uneasy about oil and gas companies sort of saying that law, the law is broken when it upholds the rights of traditional owners. So I think it is a, a matter of watching this space. I, I, I think that there will be institutional shareholders in these companies that take this kind of escalation very seriously. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised if um, the companies do hear from their shareholders that, that this kind of um, lobbying, this aggressive kind of bullying of government is not on. Just while we've got you, Bren, your group, the Australasian Centre for Corporate Responsibility, it is taking Santos to court on a separate matter um, about greenwashing claims. Can you just give us a quick update as to where that case is at? Uh, we're still in court on that case. So the case is around um, what we allege is misleading and deceptive conduct by Santos in uh, relation to their net zero plan. So we've been in court now for a bit over two years and uh, we've just got the other side's evidence. We've got another uh, case management hearing uh, in December, late December, and then uh, we still don't have a trial date, but we're, we're hopeful of, of, of getting in front of the judge for a, for a hearing uh, in 2024. Thanks for your time on The Country Hour today. No worries. Thanks very much, Dan. Bryn O'Brien is the Executive Director of the Australasian Centre for Corporate Responsibility, speaking there about some concerns raised by the oil and gas sector and specifically Santos about its Barossa gas project. Uh, it is due back in court next Monday, December 4, to have a hearing from about that challenge from Tiwi Island traditional owners. It is 20 to 1 here on the Country Hour. I'm Jack A. Neil Valentine. I'm ringing at Hakata Station and I'm originally from Kalabi in Queensland. And I listen to the country air. Yeah. We've had a text here on this topic from uh, Di in Nycliffe on 0487 1057. Di writes, The oil and gas industries need to face the reality that the era of new fossil fuel projects has passed. The climate is getting warmer by the day and we will not be able to inhabit this earth as we do now unless we make the move to renewables, which are plentiful. Rights die on the text line. If you want to contribute to the program, that text number again, 0487 1057. Well, on climate change, this year's Global Climate Summit, the COP28. This is where all the leaders and all the climate scientists around the world, they gather to talk about the issues and what's being done about climate change. 
That meeting is being launched in Dubai on Thursday. This year's COP28. And agriculture will be under the microscope like never before. Around 17% of Australia's greenhouse gas emissions come from the agricultural sector. And over the next few weeks, world leaders will be discussing how countries can reduce the environmental impact of our food production. Fiona Broom has more. Increasingly extreme weather is disrupting global food security. While total agricultural output has increased in the past 50 years, climate change is slowing this growth worldwide. That's according to the IPCC, the world's peak climate science advisory panel. While agriculture is deeply affected by climate change, it's also a significant source of greenhouse gas emissions. But is it possible to cut emissions from agriculture? Farmers say they're looking to technology to help. Absolutely, technology is a big part of the solution and a lot of farmers are at the leading edge of new technology. It's always been the way Australian agriculture is incredibly innovative. That's Natalie Collard from Farmers for Climate Action. She says Australia's food and fibre production producers are keen to find new ways to reduce agricultural emissions, working with researchers like Professor Richard Eckard from the University of Melbourne. We're coming up with innovative solutions. We've got a plan in front of government basically to drop 50% of the emissions out of the cropping industries overnight if they really wanted to achieve that. Uh, It just requires a partnership with the fertiliser industry to coat all our fertiliser. That's beyond research. That's something that can happen tomorrow if we, if there was a political will to make it happen. On the other hand, we're doing lots of research on livestock methane, supplements we can feed now, new legume technologies, breeding animals for lower methane. While farmers say they're committed to cutting their emissions, they also say there's no silver bullet when it comes to areas of food production like methane emissions from livestock. Here's National Farmers Federation President David Johinke. Food is one of the most essential things to life. We want to make sure that we can still produce food in a sustainable way, but we're not going to cut our arms off in doing so. There are a lot of technologies and techniques out there that have been adopted already, and we want to have recognition for that. We also want to acknowledge that there is a limited amount that we can do. I always believe if we talk about net zero or not expelling methane, these, these things are near impossible when we have animals have ruminants we we can't get away from that fact and we can reduce our impact but we can never really get down to that zero position and Dr Jared Greenville from Australia's federal agriculture research body ABES says technology is one option for decarbonizing food production but agrees there's only so far it can go it's quite likely that you know we won't ever be producing cattle which don't produce any methane we might have good technologies that can help lower that amount, but at this stage with our technology doesn't seem to be the case. The IPCC has said the world needs to cut back meat and dairy production to reduce emissions. So should Australia change what it eats and exports? Tammy Jonas is a pig farmer and butcher. She's also the president of the Australian Food Sovereignty Alliance, which wants to see changes to industrial food systems. Animals are a really healthy part of an ecosystem when there aren't too many of them being produced for too high a consumption load. One of our farm's uh, mottos is, is follows the slow meat mantra of eat better, meat less. And we know that places like Australia and America and the UK, we eat you know, huge amounts of meat beyond what most of the world actually eats. So if we brought the protein consumption from livestock back into balance with the ecosystem's capacity to support those animals, then we think that's the right amount. And that's how much meat 
I guess we try to produce is something that's in balance with our ecosystem and in balance with our population's need for healthy and nutritious meat in their diets. Professor Richard Eckard says the scientific possibilities for sustainable agriculture haven't yet been exhausted. I'm a big believer in technology. Before we sort of go down the track of sort of radical change to diets, I I believe we, we haven't really given technology its full extent. The, the ruin of an animal took 50 million years to evolve to a steady state and we decided 20 years ago this was a problem, we needed to change it and we've been throwing three-year drip funding research projects at it. Uh, we, we haven't seriously given it the research that it deserves to reverse 50 million years of evolution. If in 10 years' time of giving it you know, 10 years of concentrated funding, we still can't eliminate the methane from, say, the extensive cattle industry, well then... We have to think again, you know, does society accept that and accept that maybe biodiversity that they manage is uh, more important to us than the methane? Or do we change altogether? If you have a 50 million year old problem and you throw three year funding rotations at it, you're really not being serious about technology solutions. Professor Richard Eckard, ending that report there by Fiona Broom. And you're listening to The Country Hour with me, Dan Fitzgerald on ABC Radio right across the Territory. It is 13 to 1. Now, earlier this year, tropical cyclone Isla ripped through Pardu Station in the Pilbara, destroying 19 out of the station's 20 centre pivot irrigators. It flattened fences, smashed through watering points, and the recovery from this Category 5 system is still continuing. Seven months on, now with new manager Jeff McInerney. Jeff says the first three months on the station have been pretty hectic, but things are starting to take shape. There'd been a fair bit of the rebuilding had been done before I got down here, like in as far as getting the pivots re-established and the absolutely essential fencing. Uh, we've still got probably 100k of fence to stand back up and that'll be a project that runs through till next year. Fortunately, our cattle weren't badly impacted by the cyclone, so our herd rebuilding wasn't a major issue. And yeah, now we're basically full steam ahead getting our cattle ready for the, for the markets. The pivots, there were uh, 19 that were impacted in the storm. You've managed to get 12 back up and running? Yeah, that's correct, yeah. Yeah, there was, they were able to scavenge enough parts to rebuild six out of second-hand parts and get them running and then six brand-new ones. And, um, yeah, the next 12, 18 months, we'll get at least another three up and running. Yeah, driving around the property with you this morning was very different to when I was last here, which was sort of the end of May. Um, different manager as well, Scott's, um, Scott Fraser was here at that time and it's been pretty incredible to see just in three months really um, how much it's all four months, how much it's changed. How much work have you had to put in um, to get it looking up to, to the nick it's in now? Yeah, there's been, been a massive amount of work. We've had some, had some really good people, got some good contractors come and go and there's a, a couple still here like young Leith Barnes out of out of Broome and his crew they came here as a fencing crew and we've used them for just about everything from from clean up to cattle work back to fencing and a spot of carting gravel and that sort of thing um, but yeah we've had been very fortunate with some good people. Do you know how much it's cost the business the the cyclone in totality? Um, nice round figures about four million dollars out, out of pocket. And is that in including what's been reimbursed in terms of insurance and that kind of thing? Yeah, that's that's net net of insurance. Mm. It's um it's what what the companies had to pay out to to restore 
and, and fixed like over and above the insurance. With the pivots, what have you done um, for the ones that you are able, that you've either replaced or been able to fix? What are you doing to prepare for, well, we're officially now in the next cyclone season? Yeah, we've got um, got a company coming up out of Perth, uh, Percussion Earth Anchors. The, oh, they've designed a system, they've got well, well tried and proven, they've been up and done some initial testing to formalise what they're going to build and it's actually on its way out of Perth now. Um, and yeah, so the next 10 days time, they'll all be installed on the on the current pivots and um, yeah, it'll be a lot more robust system. What's that going to look like? Uh, very expensive to start with. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's necessary, like um, insurance won't cover the pivots anymore. Um, so basically we have to self-insure and to do that, we've got to make sure that we give it our best shot at putting it down like they're, they're big anchors that are driven down into the ground one and a half metres. Each pivot will have six ground anchors per span. Uh, the wheels will be each each end of the wheel beam will be chained down with with chain and ratchet uh, to those anchors. And there's another four four tie down points in the middle of each pivot, and that'll that'll tie down to six different spots on the span. So quite the setup to to prepare for you know if, if a cyclone is on the way. Um, you said tried and tested. Has it been Kimberley and Pilbara tried and tested? Do you think it could withstand another cyclone to the magnitude of TC Ilsa? Yeah, the um, the tie down points they're all they're all tested to to four ton per point. They're actually used down the camp for the Fortescue pipeline. Although there's all still anchors in the ground down there now that they obviously can't be retrieved. And um, yeah, I'm pretty sure the camp was there when the cyclone went through and it didn't get blown away, so that's a pretty good, um, pretty good test. That's Jeff McInerney. He's Pardue Station's Pilbara General Manager, speaking there with Michelle Stanley. And if Jeff sounds familiar, he actually used to be the manager at Wayfield Station out in the Victoria River District. It is five to one here on the Country Hour. Now, as Australia's agriculture industry continues to grapple with a skilled workers shortage... Training programs aimed at high school students are trying to get more young people into the industry, as Madeleine Mokoska reports. It's a hot and dusty day in outback Queensland, and high school student Georgia Ward is swapping the classroom for cattle yards. For one, you don't have to be at a desk all day. You can be outside doing, especially if you enjoy doing outdoor stuff like me. Um, so that's the best part, I reckon. It's a different experience and it's good for people who want to get into the industry, especially if they don't come from like a farming family like I do. She's part of a small cohort of Year 10, 11 and 12 students from the Longreach State High School taking part in a certified rural operations class, a nationally accredited high school-based training program built to provide vocational pathways for students. Once a week, they travel to nearby properties to learn the ropes of the agricultural industry from graziers, agents and industry professionals. Teachers Courtney Horan and Tom Higgins started offering the program after noticing the lack of pathways for young people into agriculture. Yeah, the kids love it, especially days like today when we're mustering, we're in the yards, they're hands-on, they're getting dirty. They don't love the theory as much as the practical, but we love the theory because we know ultimately education is key to the ag industry succeeding for the future and this generation coming through. And they're not just going with that eagerness and keenness to work and that physical work side to it, but they're going in with the foundational knowledge of the entire industry. Australia's agriculture industry is worth around $80 billion in 2023. 
but a skilled worker shortage in recent years has left the industry understaffed. Courtney says training and education are an obvious solution to ensuring the future of one of the country's biggest industries. Like I said, kids are getting exposure to all sorts of enterprises. Some graziers are focusing on genetics of their herds, others are fattening livestock, others are improving their pastures. So they're seeing that there's not one way to run a property or be within the ag industry. They've been visiting the local butcher, they've had livestock agents come and talk to them. So they're getting the whole picture of the industry for Australia. Hands-on learning is great for any student that would like to be more hands-on with their learning styles, but also the fact that our program is concentrating not just on kids going out to a paddock, mustering the cattle into the yards and putting them on the truck, but they're getting exposure, the knowledge and skills to what the biosecurity requirements are, who the government bodies are involved in the industry, what their workplace health and safety responsibilities and rights are, and things to do with sustainability with the industry and what the future looks like for agriculture in Australia. Fellow teacher Tom Higgins says getting the kids out of the classroom was a big factor in the program's success. It's phenomenal to give kids that uh, chance to work practically rather than just be locked up in a classroom. I can't emphasise enough how great the practical element of all of this has been to give this chance to kids who are not necessarily, you know, reading and writing learners. They're more that kinesthetic learner the chance to actually get out and build and work on these skills. Good work. That report there, thanks to Madeline McCusker. Hi, this is Robbie White. I'm the head stockman at Koala Station. We're just here today doing some cattle work and some work in the shed today, getting ready to do some fencing, and you are listening to The Country Hour. G'day there, hope your Tuesday is keeping you well. My name's Dan Fitzgerald. Thanks a lot for joining me for the Country Hour. You're on ABC Radio right across the Territory. You can also catch us via Channel 25 on your telly or via the ABC Listen app where you can listen to us live or you can download us via a podcast later. If you're listening at any time you choose. We've had a few texts through on 0487 1057 about some of our stories we've had in the first half. Robin from Bees Creek says, Hi Dan, it seems to me that all the focus on reducing carbon emissions is based around animals, industrial factories and human activities, etc. that are on the ground. Has the government considered emissions from aircraft going directly into the atmosphere? If so, I'd like to know, says Robin from Bees Creek. Uh, Robin, in the brief time I've had during the news doing a little bit of Googling on Infrastructure Department's website, it says... That Air Service Australia's environmental and sustainability strategy includes a target of reducing CO2 emissions per flight by an average of 10%. It wants to do that by 2030. Just how it's going in terms of reaching that target, I haven't been able to find out for you, Robin, right now. But yes, it is being thought about by those in government, apparently. And we also had a text through from Al from Humpty Doo. He says, even green people buy oil and gas. It is demand and supply. Audio, time to check out the weather and what's happening there. We've got Sally Cutter on the line with us. How are you, Sally? Oh, not too bad, thanks. That's good. Uh, let's have a look at rainfall figures. What were some of the totals in the last 24 hours? Well, first prize goes to Howley Creek. They had 26.2 millimetres. 
Sliesbeck had 21, closely followed by Peeling Gympie Reeds 20. So that's, they're the top three. Upper Waterhouse River had 18.4. Levent Grange, 17.5. Bowlula, 17 millimetres. MacArthur River, 14.5. Down at Bowlula Way. Howard River, 15.5. Adelaide River Township, 15. Bailey's Grave, 13.5. Upper Catherine River, 13. Daly River Police Station, 13 as well. Mount Nankar, 12. Adelaide River, 11, and Gawley, and 17 Mile Creek had 10. Everything else was below 10 millimetres. Okay, so no huge rainfall figures, nah. but uh, yeah, there's, there's a decent spread around. Yep. Yes, so in, we are expecting those showers and storms to continue. We'll probably get a little bit more likely tomorrow over the top end. We are starting to see some showers already popping up around the coast today. The, so they will... So Persistent. The top end will continue. The, they probably will be very slow moving for the next few days, maybe start moving Friday, but not very fast. So the, the, you might see some sort of larger totals just simply because they aren't moving and then and also you might see them or you might get very wet because it's not going to move. As we go into the tomorrow down through the southern parts of the NT, we're going to see the showers and storms return through the Tanami and Leicester in particular. There are a few showers and storms popping up in the Tanami today, but we'll get a bit more likely tomorrow. And then that focus will move towards the east. So, but we might also see some, some severe thunderstorms redevelop down in that Tanami, also the Leicester district tomorrow. Yeah, okay. On Thursday. Uh, how much rain could that potentially bring to the Lasseter district? Oh, if so there's a bit of variation in models, but we could see up to 30 millimetres. Okay. Uh, so, would that be isolated storms or more widespread? Uh, probably, be, probably storms, so there'd be gaps in between. And probably a little bit more widespread tomorrow, and then... But still certainly there on Thursday. And then as we go into Friday, things are easing off and could even clear for Saturday. But we're going to see them redevelop down that western border on during Sunday and into Monday and then Tuesday, a fair bit across the southern parts of the... or right across the NT. So we, if you don't want storms, it's probably going to be a bit tough to clear it out for any given length of time. But if you to, with that, if, for those of you who want rain, it's it's going to it's going to be sporadic, but there is going to be some about. Okay, and not only rain, but did you say there's some potential for hail in the in the centre? Yeah, there is. Just on Thursday, just uh, there's enough energy in the storms that we might and the wind and things just set up right with a bit of a middle level trough coming across as well. So we might see some storms. So the, through that APY land the, and the eastern parts of the Lassiter district. Mm, okay. Uh, anything else for us today, Sally? No, not today. Just with, with the storm still around, just keep an ear out for any warnings that are put out. And so the fire situation has eased off. But again, the, if any fires start, just pay attention to the messaging from the bushfires NT or fire agencies. Of course. And tune in to your local ABC. Thanks for your time, Sally. Thanks very much. That is Sally Cutter there at the Weather Bureau. It is 11 past one. Enjoy a feast of movies for free on ABC iView. From Kate Blanchett in Carol. When would you like to marry him? 
I barely even know what to order for lunch. To Taika Waititi's boy. I'm your dad. Hey, dad. Want to see some Michael Jackson dance moves? Plus the King's Speech, Brooklyn, LA Confidential, and so many more. We're plumbing rich. A feast of delicious movies all summer long. Bon appétit. Streaming free and ad-free on ABC iView. G'day, I'm Ben Coates, Catherine Northern Territory. Flat out loading trucks and supplying the rural industry across the north. We keep the ABC on at work all day so that our customers and our staff can keep up with all the news and latest happenings. And you're listening to The Country Hour. Well, have you ever heard of the Gelvy cattle breed before? No, it wasn't one I was too familiar with. But the stud at Rennes Springs on the Barclay has brought in some Gelvy bulls, which it believes are the first of the breed to be brought into the Northern Territory. They're a bit of a muscly, reddish, golden-coloured breed that apparently is very good at healing cuts on the skin. Stud manager Valmay Jones explains here her plans for the bulls that have just been trucked into the property. We intend to breed the Jelby cattle alongside our drought master stud cattle here in the Northern Territory and cross them, do a crossbred um, trial, crossbreeding trial with them. They have the ability to resist the lumpy skin disease, in my opinion, because they, they have a natural ability to heal sores on their skin, which I think makes them really attractive and so we've we've commenced a trial breeding crossbreeding program here as of last year actually but this year we've taken a bigger step and brought in a number of purebred bulls to cross over some of our drought master cows how are they going to stand the barkley heat they should be very tolerant to the heat up here they they're known for their heat tolerance as well as their resistance to ticks they have this ability to heal the sores on their skin by cutting off blood circulation to their any injuries. So I'm expecting to see animals come out of our program with zero marks on their hide. That's what we're aiming for and uh, extra better, e- extra good milking ability. So heavier calves, These, this breed is a heavily muscled breed, a lot like Wagyu, excepting I think they're a bit prettier to look at. They've got a low birth weight and fast growth and they carry an awful lot of beef on their carcass. They're just amazing, the size of them. Our bulls came in here that we bought this year weighing in at 1,040 kgs for the heaviest one and the lightest one. And these bulls, keeping in mind, they're only just over two years old and our lightest one was just on two years old. He came in at 958 kgs, and these bulls were not fat. They were, they were just, they're just heavy bulls. So it's really exciting what we're doing here, and some of the results of our crossbreeding program, I guess, will be seen through the sale yards in the Northern Territory in the next 18 months. What got you into the idea of getting those type of bulls up here? All the problems that have been going on over the last couple of years with the live export bans and things, and we're just looking around and seeing what we could do to um, maybe come up with ideas that might help. 
might um, give people options. Yeah, so we've come up with this idea and the colour is the same as our Drought Master cattle, so we're still producing a good line of nice red cattle. The only difference will be they'll be a heavier type of animal and should have faster growth, higher growth rates on them and hopefully a higher resistance to any of these skin marks that um, people are having trouble selling now in the Northern Territory. And forever, that's what we've bred out of our cattle. You get these cattle get sores on their skins from buffalo flies and insects over the wet season, and sometimes those scars remain. And with our drought master cattle, we've always, anything like that, we've bred out. We don't keep animals with that sort of stuff wrong anyway. So in general, our herd's pretty good skin as far as marks on their skin and stuff goes, but this should give it an extra boost along. It's going to be quite amazing how it all turns out. I'm looking really forward to the future with these bulls. That is Valmay Jones. She's the manager of the Savannah Drought Master and now Galvay Stud. Speaking there to Jan Kahoot about her new Galvay bulls that have been brought into the place. Sounds pretty interesting, hey? It is 16 past one here on the Country Hour with me, Dan Fitzgerald. Time now for a tune. This one is by Emily Nenny. Nineteen past one here on the Country Hour with me, Dan Fitzgerald, on ABC Radio right across the Territory. Well, how about this? A group of three young Territorians are heading over to the US to represent Australia at the National Finals Rodeo in Las Vegas. Mac Harris from Daily Waters, Jack Jones from Coolabar Station and Blake Cook from out in the Gulf Country. They're all on their way over to the US to compete. I had a chat earlier this morning to Mac as he was waiting at the airport to get on a plane in Sydney head over to the States. Um, my name's Mac Albie Harris. I'm 11 years old and I'm from Highway in Daddy Waters, three hours south of Catherine. I'm in the airport waiting to go to, go to America. Uh, we're flying to LA to represent Australia in the 10 to 11 bareback in Las Vegas. And how did you get uh, invited to that event? Um, I put an application in hoping to get chosen, and I did. And how are you feeling about it all? Yeah, I'm pretty excited, nervous. What are you expecting the competition to be like in Las Vegas? Uh, a lot different to here. There'll be all the stock will be a lot rougher and a lot different. The horse is going to buck a bit harder. I'll have a bit more competition and that. And how have you been preparing for this competition in over in the US? Yeah. Uh, every afternoon I'll do a little workout. Uh, when Dad's home, we'll buck a few ponies out. I've been putting a ring on some of the balls to practice, and yeah. And how do you think you're going to go? I reckon I'll go pretty good. I'm going to put everything i got in it. And who else is going with you? Is there any other Territorians? Yeah, my mate Jack Jones, he's representing for the mini bull ride and Blake Cook, he's gone over for bareback, um, saddle, sorry. G'day, I'm Kim Harris, I'm Max's mum. 
And Kim, how are you feeling about your son going off to compete in the rodeo yeah. in the US? Yeah, it's pretty exciting. Uh, yeah, we've been um, waiting all year for the event, so yeah, we're all pretty excited to be getting on the plane. Yeah, how big is the deal is it for your family and that your son's been uh, chosen to represent Australia? Yeah, no, it's excellent. So he works pretty hard and it's yeah, it's a good reward for him, so hopefully he can get a few good horses over here. Nice. And how long are you going to be spending over there? Uh, we'll come home the 6th of January, so we're ticking one off my bucket list, having a white Christmas in Montana. Best of luck um, from all of us here at the Country Hour. We hope he does well. Yeah, thank you very much. There's Kim Harry's there from Daily Waters, uh, 11-year-old son, Mac, one of three Territory lads heading over to Las Vegas to compete in the National Finals Rodeo there. Uh, we will... Make sure that we keep track of them and find out how they go over in the States. With the ABC Listen app, you can take the cricket with you anywhere you go. Boom! Off to the beach. Take the cricket. Road trip. Take the cricket. Museum visit. Shh, take the cricket. Seriously? You want to listen? <laughs> ABC Sports, expert coverage of every test. Big shot, he's out. One day up. Australia is celebrating. And T20. Over the road for another six. Live and commercial free. So whatever you're up to this summer, take the cricket with you and listen big on the ABC Listen app. Well, Northern Territory ecologists are compiling a recovery plan for Australia's only carnivorous bats, which live in the top end. Charles Darwin Uni researcher Nicola Hanrahan says ghost bats are an important and fascinating species that needs to be protected. So it got its name because it's, um, it's got quite pale fur, Um, And also it's got these big, beautiful um, wings that are quite translucent. Um, I think they're they're quite beautiful in lots of ways. um, They have these big, beautiful ears that they they use for um, listening to prey. Um, They're quite a large bat. You know, they're compared to other microbats. They're they're huge. They've got a 70 centimeter wingspan and they're they're, um, super social species. You know, they live in these big colonies and um, they use all these different vocalizations to communicate with each other so they're a really fascinating species. What is your research looking at specifically? So my research is looking into filling um, these key knowledge gaps that are hindering us at the moment in terms of designing effective conservation plans um, and also protecting the species from impact as a result of development and we know so little even about the fundamental things about the ghost bats, such as you know having an accurate population size or or knowing where their key breeding roosts are. Um, so if we can gather more information on those kind of things and also stuff like what why they roost certain places and what they need um, in terms of habitat for foraging, then we can protect them a whole lot better. Why do you think it's important to protect them? Um, it's important to protect them because they're a real key part of the ecosystem. So um, they're quite high up in the, the food chain. They they feed on large insects, but they also feed on a range of vertebrates. So they'll, they feed on birds and frogs and, and reptiles and even other bats. So th- they have quite an important role in terms of um, keeping the balance of the ecosystem. What are the biggest threats to ghost bats? The biggest threats are the disturbance or the removal of habitat. So um, in particular, their roosting habitat, their cave-dwelling species, uh, they roost in 
sandstone and limestone caves um, and they also really like old mine um, workings, old mine shafts to, to roost in um, and so yeah the removal of that key um, roosting habitat has a big impact because they're they have these very particular needs in terms of temperature and humidity within the cave. So once they're removed, uh, it can be quite hard for them to find an alternative spot. Um, and then also the removal of foraging habitat. So they have such a, a varied diet and they need large areas on which to forage. And and they require particular structure in the the vegetation, um, for example, they need large trees to perch on to be able to watch for prey on the ground. And so if that kind of thing is removed, then that can really impact their their foraging. Um, and then there's, there's several other things, you know, barbed wire can have a big impact, barbed wire entanglement. Um, and, and cane toads have also been um, uh, put forward as a potential um, threat in that ghost bats may mistakenly feed on cane toads when they're hunting frogs. Nicola Hanrahan, she's a ghost bat researcher based at Charles Darwin University. She was speaking there to Victoria Ellis about some of the work that's going on for a recovery plan for ghost bats, Australia's only carnivorous bats, apparently. Time now to check in on the cattle markets. David Friend has this report from Roma in Queensland. Roma agents yarded 3,245 head with scattered showers around. Cattle were drawn from New South Wales, far western Queensland, the local supply area. All the regular processes in attendance also feel as background is active. Market lifting considerably, and buyers opting to purchase runs of steers. Light weight yielding steers under 200 kilos returning to the paddock made to 424 to average 372. Yielding steers under 280 kilos to feed topped at 458. Yielding steers under 330 kilos topped at 412 to average 370. Yielding steers under 400 kilos topped at 430. With the 400 to 480 kilos sold to 346 to average 340. Yielding steers 40 kilo, 480 kilos sold from $3.40 during the previous sale. Manufacturing steers sold to 227. Growing steers 400 to 500 kilos made to 302 to average 299. Growing steers 500 to 600 kilos sold to 310 to average 289. Growing steers over 600 kilos topped at 299. With the time of this interim report, heavy bulls sold to 250. This has been David from the National Livestock Reporting Service. Thanks for that, David. In the live export trade, Things are looking fairly slow. According to the Darwin Ports website, there's only one ship, live export ship, due into the port in the next seven days. That is the Galloway Express, which is due to come in on Saturday. Having a look at the Eki, though, the Eastern Young Cattle Indicator, it's continuing to bounce back. It's up 47 cents on this time last week at 519 cents a kilo carcass weight. That's it for the Country Hour for today. Thanks a lot for your company. Remember, if you missed any part of the show, you can always download it later at any time you wish. Easiest way to do that is via the ABC Listen app on your phone. Matt Brown will be back on your radio tomorrow. Thanks a lot for joining me. Take it easy. Listener.